This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In the last few months, a lot of us have been giving serious thought to our consumer habits. Have we been buying too much? And if so, why have we been buying so much? And do things need to change? For some people, the economic downturn means that the party's over, but it was fun while it lasted. For other people, though, it's a reckoning, a chance to think about how we've all gone wrong in the last few years, and to figure out how to govern our material needs in the future in a way that doesn't leave us overspent or in debt. Today on the show, we're talking about one perspective on consumption that is a little bit more encompassing than making the decision to cut up our credit cards. Tom Bedoin is an associate professor of practical theology at Fordham, and he's the author of the book Consuming Faith, Integrating Who We Are with What We Buy. In that book, which draws from both the scriptures and Naomi Klein's No Logo, Bedoin looks at the brand economy and our participation in it from a theological perspective. Later on the show, Keeping the Economy Kosher, But first, I invited Bedoin to come to our studios and talk about the economy, ethics, and what this means for all of us, whether we're religious or not. Tom Bedoin, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you tell a story at the beginning of your book that's meant to bring us into the ideas that you talk about, and it has to do with lattes. Tell me the story and why you begin with it. Uh, The story has to do with uh, when I first became conscious of where my favorite vanilla lattes from a national chain that all your hearers will uh, recognize, but I will not advertise for right here. Um, When I realized uh, that that latte was actually coming from somewhere in Latin America, uh, the beans were, and uh, I wanted to uh, become conscious of where that was and to try to actually travel there and take pictures of those folk and bring them back and put them in the coffee shop, and they would not allow that. and this was all part of a an awakening for me about how strung up my everyday purchases were within the global economy and how I'm kind of striated out across the globe in terms of what I wear. This was a, this was a um, new consciousness for me in my early to mid-30s, and it made me want to become much more reflective about what I was supporting when I was buying my particular brand of coffee from this national chain. I think you're not the only person who had that realization. Mm. It's been sort of a a popular thing in the last few years to say, well, where does this really come from? Mm-hmm. But instead of responding to it in sort of a social justice, sort of secular way, you've responded to it by thinking theologically about it. Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, you're right. Lots of people are coming to this realization. And um, as a theologian, I couldn't help but think of... Uh, branding and my purchases uh, from the viewpoint of theology. And so I wanted to know a few things. First of all, how, from the point of view of human dignity and the fundamental equality from a theological perspective of all human beings, irrespective of social class, race, uh, national status, whatever, how were my purchases changing the lives for better and worse of other people around the world whom I will never meet and and conducting them more deeply into their dignity or taking that away from them. From at least a Christian theological point of view and many other theological points of view as well, but at least for a Christian one, your economic practices bear out your deepest commitments. And so once you think about what kind of value system you are um, manifesting 
in your array of purchases, then you can see that there's probably a lot of work for for many of us on integrating who we are spiritually with what we buy. Could you speak a little bit more specifically about what you're talking about there? Uh, what I mean is that basically the way the branding culture works is that identities are pre-specified for you in the branding culture. When you buy a particular kind of coffee or sneakers or slacks or sweater or car that is associated with the brand, you often are encouraged to do so by advertising in a branding economy because you want to identify with that lifestyle behind it or that particular identity. That's why we are often fierce defenders of our brands uh, because they are a part of who we are becoming. The way the branding economy is able to be set up, though, is dependent on uh, all sorts of invisible labor around the world that uh, people to whom we are actually in relationship economically. And so we are we are helping them live or not live by the way we relate to our brands. And so if I am purchasing a pair of shoes because these shoes are kind of a part of my lifestyle, my identity, what I want to say about myself – and at the same time, the uh, women who make these shoes in China or in El Salvador, uh, if they are being unnecessarily kept down, locked in, dehumanized by these purchases, then this says something about me uh, and what I am all about, in a sense. So what I really want to say is, you know, in, in America, I'll put it this way. We often think of our spirituality as kind of what we want to stand for most basically, to ask someone their spirituality and they'll say, well, I'll tell you I believe in this or I'm all about this. And I, I want to say, okay, but also our spirituality, that is to say what's deepest and most important to us, is also what we allow to happen and what we allow to happen through our purchases, whether it's a war, whether it's the abuse of others through our uh, branding practices and all that kind of thing. That sounds like it could be a completely secular thing, um, like you would say. It's, it's the right thing to do to keep track of these things mm. and to make conscientious decisions about what you buy. How does this become an issue of, of Christianity? Well, uh, it becomes an issue of Christianity because, first of all, just because it's a human concern doesn't mean it, it can't then be a Christian concern. But it's an issue for Christianity because according to the New Testament— and much of the Christian tradition, especially the Catholic tradition of which I'm a part, your faith is manifest in your works. That is to say, how you relate to other people becomes the way that you relate to God. Those are not separate. You cannot segment out one from the other. One need not explicitly recognize and be conscious of God in the generosity of your life, but the point is to live a generous life. If one is living a generous life, then one is living as we are created to live. One of the things you say that I think is really interesting is that branding occupies a lot of the space that spirituality might occupy, even when we self-identify as religious people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I say that because branding helps us in our culture to fabricate, if you will, the truth of ourselves. And uh, we... As we're growing up and into adulthood, we rely on lots of different uh, symbol systems and practices to to construct this sense of ourselves. But in our culture, we have for the last 25 years especially 
a host of corporations who flood our consciousness, whether it's on the radio like this or on television or now the Internet, billboards and other ways, uh, on airplanes, that uh, try to give us a symbolic order to tell us who we are and a set of practices around who we are. Not just purchasing practices, but practices of displaying what you wear. You know, in branding culture, you and I uh, basically are walking advertisements for corporations, but we don't charge them for advertising for them. They help us do our identity work. This is analogous to the way that religion, if you will, is supposed to function and still does function for some people. That is to say, it, it gives you a set of practices and an identification with the community through which you can kind of fabricate your identity or, or find out what you're all about. So that's why I say branding has kind of a religious function in our society. I was also interested that you had this whole realization about branding after reading Naomi Klein's No Logo. That's yeah. not so much a religious book. Well, no, and she was surprised that I took it the direction that I did. Um, I've talked with her a little bit about what I did with her work. Uh, and she's not hostile to it, although she herself doesn't really want to enter into the religious conversation that much, at least the last time we talked. I was very inspired by Naomi Klein's work, and I thought she was someone kind of from my generation, and that she was on to a way of being in contemporary culture that was more daring than many of the many, if not most of the Christian theologians that I read. And so I wanted to I want to be the kind of theologian who reads someone like Naomi Klein, uh, and who, as far as I can tell, is a um, secular uh, Jewish woman. Uh, writing about globalization and to say, oh, she has something profound to teach me about my own Christianity and about what Christians ought to be about. Tell me a little bit more about what you took from No Logo. What I took from No Logo is really a couple things. First of all, that branding doesn't come from nowhere, that the branding culture in which we live, uh, that is to say, the idea that we associate a lifestyle with all sorts of different things that we consume that branding culture is built on the back of an economy that is fundamentally exploitative and is built on the invisibility of all the people who create the brands. So I call it in the book what I learned from Naomi Klein. The brands are a blindfolding embrace. They want to enfold you in an identity, however progressive, I must say. There are a lot of kind of liberal branded products, too. However progressive, it wants, it, it wants to embrace you in a certain identity, but also blindfold you about, if you will, the chain of command or the chain of production uh, that led that brand to come into existence. So I, I learned that from her, that, that to think about my purchases as bound up in a history uh, that is an exploitative history, and, but then also to really pay attention to the headspace in our culture and to notice how much of our everyday life is occupied with the negotiation with brands. Her book shows this very, very clearly. And I thought she's really helping to denominate a Im really important characteristic of our everyday lives. And when I say our, I mean not just middle-class folk like myself, but a whole range of people in our society. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Why do you think that branding is so powerful in, well, I guess it's pretty much the whole world now. It is pretty much the whole world. This is one of our colonial gifts, in a way, to the rest of the world. Why do I think it's so powerful? Well, the branding, the brand managers at corporations can already give you an answer to that. They have already figured out why. 
and it has to do with the invocation or the incitement of your emotional life, uh, your need to belong, your need to identify, your need to clarify your identity. It has to do with being able to do that at a crucial phase of your life between the ages of 12 and 25 when your identity is in play and getting formed and solidified. It has to do with then extending that beyond your 20s into adulthood by the continued identification with that brand. It has to do with uh, our own sense of shame and neediness and playing on that. It has to do uh, positively with our desire to have joy uh, in our life and a sense of coherence. Basically, what it's doing is, as Vincent Miller says in his wonderful book, Consuming Religion, corporate culture and branding culture plays into our need to do something with our desires, to help give some coherence to our desires. And for that reason, I think uh, branding culture is really important theologically because in Christian theology, and if I can say this, in religion in general, we have to make some sense of our desires find some way of living with ourselves. Um, And um, corporate culture, branding culture, gives you uh, a palette of things you can do with those those desires, things you can do, the kind of person you become. So it's it's not very superficial, even though it's sometimes cast that way. It's it's moving us and inviting us at a deep level. And again, all I'm telling you is in somewhat is a somewhat religified version of what the brand managers already published in their own literature. On WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, you're listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're talking about consumption, faith, and the branding economy. In a few minutes, we'll take a look at the business of Shabbat. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with theologian Tom Bedoin. So it sounds like you have sort of a few different issues. Um, You have the idea of consuming responsibly, and then you also have the idea that branding is very powerful, and then there's also religion tied up in this. Could you pick it apart a little bit more for me? Yes. um, You're right. There are a lot of things going on there. There is. uh, Let me take the first one, because the book has been criticized on this point. Consuming responsibly. My book book has been criticized for being neoliberal in its approach. That is to say, for uh, basically being reformist instead of radical. Because in the book, uh, I end up saying, look, if everybody can identify in their own lives one brand that you want to investigate and find out where it came from, and then make up your own mind about what's your next step in spiritual maturity, or to say it differently, what's your next step in fidelity to that economic relationship with you have that you have with those women who made that stuff for you, right? What's your next step? That uh, very modest approach in my book is criticized as neoliberal, basically giving in to the branding economy. But I want to say um, that's about all we can expect, to be honest with you, because to do more – now, Naomi Klein, she's more radical, and I, I'm very sympathetic with what we would call her prophetic approach, believe me. But I also do a lot of work on the ground with students here at Fordham, with people in parishes. And I, the, to step in only in a prophetic mode is going to, unfortunately, for better or worse, turn a whole lot of people off and not be very practical for them. I know so, prophetic is a, is a term that's specific to theology. Could you tell me what it means? Yeah, prophetic has a couple different meanings. Uh, it means um, kind of taking a radically divine 
if you will, approach to a particular problem and calling out the sin or the evil that is there in a very kind of, if you will, contrastive kind of black and white stance. Uh, That's sometimes what we mean by prophetic. But another meaning of prophetic is simply describing the situation just as it is, apart from harshness or intensity. So, So I... In this more radical, declarative uh, sense of prophecy, I find that in most people in everyday life, they don't want to be—they don't want to feel ashamed or guilty about their purchases, and that doesn't motivate them. But if you can say, like in the movie, "What about Bob?" when he says, um, "Look," uh, Dreyfus says to him, "Bob, can you take baby steps? Just take baby steps, and you'll get better." Right. So that's what I recommend: is people take baby steps in their purchases, just one thing at a time, something that's important to them. So that's, that is definitely one issue that I have is kind of actually what's going to generate real change on this issue? What's going to generate real justice, right? So the other issue is um, a, just a general awareness about how we relate to our own brands and whom we are giving permission to work out our identity with um, in our own adult lives. So that's, that's another issue. And again, I think Christianity is interested in both of these things because – from the from the Catholic theological point of view, we all have a, a project to make with our lives. We all have freedom to become someone in our lives. However horrible our situation is, we have some measure of freedom to be good. We are not disasters. And I take this very seriously that however uh, controlling or manipulative or um, abusive the brand economy is, there is still hope and we can still change. And uh, we have a measure of freedom to do something different. So that's why a theological point of view is interested in all this, too. Something you do in the book, which I thought was interesting, was that you don't mention any actual brands in the book. Mm. You sort of intimate what the brands are, but you don't mention them. Why did you do it that way? Was there a price to be paid in terms of clarity for doing that? (laughs) There was a price to be paid in terms of potential lawsuits. There were two issues. One is uh, I didn't want to open myself and the publisher to getting sued by writing about these brands in a somewhat critical way. Uh, And um, secondly, I just didn't want to provide any extra advertising for these particular brands in the book. If anybody wants to know which brands I'm really talking about when I delete them, they, they can email me or call me and I'll tell them. And many people have in fact done so. We were just speaking about this, but just to clarify, why is it important to understand this stuff in terms of a religious belief rather than in terms of it just being the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Well, I would say we shouldn't presume a separation between a religious belief and something being the right thing to do. Those may, in fact, finally be the same thing. Let me just say also that there can be multiple motivations for what you call doing the right thing, okay? Whether it's a religious belief, whether it's a secular belief, something else. Um, But from a religious point of view, it's important to undertake this analysis of brands because concretely people are harmed in this economy, both the buyers of brands in terms of the constriction on self-image and the makers of brands in terms of um, the, the young women around the world who are sewing your stuff and my stuff. And for a religious person for whom, now from a Christian point of view explicitly, justice is a fundamental commitment 
And for Catholic Christianity, anyway, if you're if you're not being just, there's a question about whether you're really loving God. For someone for whom justice is a fundamental part of your life, the brand economy poses some pretty serious questions, and they're not easy to resolve. Many people who live in the United States consider the United States to be a Christian nation, but yet this isn't the content of what you hear us talking about every single day. Are there ways that we avoid talking about this stuff, or are there other people who don't think this is a fundamental issue of Christianity? Oh, I would say, um, well, that's, that's, that's actually it's an interesting question. In popular Christian discourse in our country, something like a capitalism, something like branding, um, consumption uh, is not very high on the radar. Look, it took many, many years for the Iraq war to get up there on the radar. It took many years for global warming to get up there on the radar. The people who are really prophetic that we mentioned earlier, they have seen this on the radar for a long time, but it's taking a long while for, if you will, most everyday Christians to come around on this. So, yeah, there's a tremendous avoidance of this issue. Um, And it has to do with uh, the lack of critical resources for thinking about this, people, there's not a lot of um, talk on the television or, or on radio or in the media about these issues. And uh, second, you know, people are exhausted in their lives uh, very quickly by thinking about this. They feel hopeless and they don't know what to do. What would you like to see happen? What I would like to see happen is for, I guess, a couple things. One, for Christians to join hands with everybody else who cares about this issue, no matter what their background, to say that we need an economy that serves human beings, and we need a set of purchases that serves human beings. And we have to ask, what are the moral foundations of our economic practices? To, to have that conversation happen in the United States, again, across religious lines and non-religious lines, as far as I'm concerned, that would be the greatest good. I would love to see I would love to see the economy radically reformed in that way, but first we just have to have a much more generalized consciousness, kind of like we do, I hope now, about the Iraq war, um, that the way we've set up our economy is um, fundamentally destructive and exploitative, and we can have a, a conversation across lines of belief and, and uh, tradition to talk about that. Well, Tom Bedoin is an associate professor of practical theology, and he is the author of Consuming Faith, Integrating Who We Are with What We Buy, among other books, from Sheed and Ward Publishers. Tom, thanks so much for talking to me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning at Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look back at 100 years of the Grand Concourse. That's Cityscape this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. First, though, let's take a look at religion and consumption from a little bit of a different angle. With the weekend comes Shabbat, the Jewish Day of Rest. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, Jewish law prohibits certain kinds of work, things we often take for granted, like writing, erasing, cutting, tearing, and turning lights off and on. 
Because of this, observant Jews have been known to spend many a Friday afternoon doing things that might look a little bit weird, like pre-ripping toilet paper to prepare for the Sabbath. In recent years, though, an industry has emerged that manages to merge modernity with traditional religion. Rebecca Shear has more. To understand the Jewish Sabbath, you first have to understand the Hebrew word melacha. It's a mysterious word that's related to the creative activity that God used to create the world. It's also used in the building of the tabernacle in the desert. The tabernacle being the portable version of the holy temple that the Israelites slept around the desert for 40 years. And, says Rabbi Shmuel Veffer of Toronto, by building that tabernacle, the Israelites brought God's presence into the physical world. But on the Sabbath, we want to refrain from doing that kind of activity because if we felt ourselves totally responsible for being God's presence in the world, we'd start thinking we control God. So what observers of the Sabbath do is take each melacha, or creative activity, Activity that the Israelites performed. And what we avoid doing is the identical activity or a derivative of the activity, which is similar in result or form. For instance, the Israelites ignited and extinguished fires. So Sabbath observers can't switch an electrical current on or off or burn gas to drive a car. The Israelites shared sheep and cut animal hides. Observers can't trim their nails or tear toilet paper. So with 39 of these acts to contend with, keeping the Sabbath in today's world can be a challenge. Which is why in 2004, Rabbi Shmuel Veffer founded Kosher Innovations. Our mission is to develop practical, innovative products that help the Sabbath observant community meet the challenges presented by a modern lifestyle. Their flagship product is the Kosher Lamp. Its bulb stays on all day. But it has a double shade. When you line them up, the light shines through. When the windows aren't lined up, the light is blocked. So it's as if you turned it off without having to interact with the electricity. Veffer says he sold tens of thousands of kosher lamps, along with other products like Shabbos bathroom tissue. Pre-cut and fold it like facial tissue in a little teeny box. Even a Shabbos toothbrush and liquid tooth wash, since it's a melacha to spread or smooth an ointment like paste onto an object. It doesn't do as good a job, but your mouth will feel fresh and clean when you get up and go to synagogue for your prayers. The Manufacturers Association of Israel estimates that annual sales of rabbinically approved Sabbath-friendly products could reach $10 million worldwide. But Kosher Innovations isn't the only company helping modern Jews. Israel's Zomit Institute offers Sabbath telephones, which you dial indirectly with special buttons and microprocessors. They've even created an elevator that automatically stops at every floor. And a Michigan-based company is helping them develop a scooter that powers up and starts moving all by itself, thanks to something called Sabbath mode. This one has a Sabbath mode, right? Yes. Yep. Elki isn't shopping for a Sabbath scooter. She's at a Boston-area appliance store looking at refrigerators. Thank you. Thanks for letting us browse. Sabbath mode refrigerators, which disable all electrical activities like the lights when you open the door. Zarhi already has a Sabbath mode fridge, a kosher lamp. It's the best lamp ever. Even a Sabbath mode oven, which is way too complicated to go into here. Yet, as helpful as these items can be, they can also leave her feeling a bit torn. Part of Shabbat is not being able to always have your hot, hot food or the convenience of turning your Sabbath mode fridge on. We should hold on to being a little bit less modern just for a few hours. It's nice to keep on to something. But that something, Zarki says, doesn't have to be kept on to so tightly or traditionally. We don't like to live just by the letter of the law. We like to live with the spirit. You know, you don't practice Judaism. You live Judaism. And Shabbat is similar. You don't observe Shabbat. You celebrate Shabbat. And different Jews celebrate this time of reflection and introspection in different ways. 
So sure, says Rabbi Shmuel Veffer, not everyone is cavelling over his kosher innovations. There's some saying, you know what, we prefer to keep doing it the way we've been doing it, follow the traditions. But nobody's questioning their legality either. There are things that I could come up with that I feel wouldn't be in the spirit of the Sabbath, which is sort of reflecting on your relationships with your family and your God. You know, if I'm going to take something that's going to make it easy for somebody to not think about God, then I'm not going to come up with that product. Like an example would be put a timer on your television so that it came on so you could watch the football game. That's definitely not something that's going to keep you within the spirit of the day. Of course, technically, the same goes for radio. Though some rabbis say that if it's on when Shabbos starts, you're in the clear. The jury's still out on the kosherness of changing the station, however. So if you do find yourself tuned in after sundown on a Friday, play it safe. Stick with public radio. Wishing everyone a Shabbat Shalom. I'm Rebecca Shear in Boston. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives. You can find both of those at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.